Hebrews uh, chapter 4, 14 through 16. Seeing then that we have a great high priest who has passed throughout the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confessions. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weakness, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help him in time of, time of need. You may be seated. Thanks for reading our scripture this morning, Zach. Uh, for those of you who may not know, my name is Alex. I'm one of the elders here um, at Rooted Church. Uh, our lead pastor, Rodney, is actually at First Baptist Church, Cassville. Um, every two years, they do a missions conference where all the missionaries that they financially support, they actually fly in, uh, host them for a week, um, and th those missionaries get to share of the fruit uh, that's happening from those investments. Um, and so uh, thanks for uh, just allowing him to go, um, and we are incredibly thankful for First Baptist Castle supporting us and our church planting efforts here. Also, just a housekeeping tip. This is a family Sunday, so normally where uh, our children uh, would go down to Little Sprouts, they're going to join us in the gathering this morning. But just a friendly reminder that downstairs um, is fully operating. Uh, the, the sermon video and audio is being piped downstairs. If, you want, if your kid just needs a little bit more space, um, please feel it. don't hesitate to go downstairs and then worship in that way. Um, this morning we have an iconic verse to kind of dive into. Uh, when Rodney and I were discussing uh, which weeks were up for grabs, um, and this one kind of fell on my shoulders, I felt a little bit of the double-edged sword, if I were to be honest, because I feel like this these verses and these phrases are heavily talked about. Um, I'm guessing that if you're a Christian in this room, uh, that on one or more occasions, this, uh, these passages have been preached to you, maybe texted to you as encouragement, maybe sent to you via carrier pigeon, uh, you know. Um, and so you probably already have in your mind and in your heart a perspective of what these verses mean. And so I was challenged uh, as to how to approach this verse as a teacher this morning, but also I was quickly reminded that for those who maybe aren't Christians in the room this morning, that these verses are incredibly impactful, and they've been impactful, impactful on me, and that I was reminded to, as a, as a novice preacher, that the, the, the scripture is what does the heavy lifting, right? It's not about my words, because I was challenged to think, like, how could I come up with something new and cool and catchy? And I was like, man, that, that's not what scripture is about. I just want to let scripture do the talking this morning. And so, I feel like we have an incredible exhortation uh, that our author of Hebrews gives us. And thinking through the Old Testament is which, as, as Hebrews gives us a perspective on, hi, uh, a perspective. You want to go back and say, oh, mommy? You want to go back and say, oh, mommy? <laughs> okay, thank you. That's my daughter, Kala. Um, as I was thinking through Hebrews this morning um, and thinking throughout it and studying it this week, um, I was just thinking of the, con the constant con context of what this passage provides for us as being near to God versus what Old Testament um, uh, believers also experienced. That all throughout the Old Testament, only Moses could go to the mountain to be with God. Everybody else had to stay away. And if you also think about the continuation of the Old Testament, it was only the high priest who got to go into the Holy of Holies and once a year to be with God. Everybody else had to stay away. And so what we're talking about today, this morning through Hebrews, is a quick reminder that we have been brought near to God through a perfect Savior. And you can count on that nearness because that nearness does not rely upon your perfection, but it relies upon Christ. And so I want to I pray to, to start my sermon with, the, with that in mind, and we'll keep going. 
Heavenly Father, I'm thankful for your scripture um, that I get to be shielded by it this morning. Um, as I'm intimidated by preaching, as I'm fearful um, uh, of, of a lack of knowledge or perspective, I'm reminded, Lord, that your scripture does all the heavy lifting. And so I pray that you would, you would help um, all of us who hear the scripture this morning to be enlightened and to be encouraged and to be convicted, but to be reminded of your deep love for us and to be reminded that you are our great high priest this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. So in an effort to kind of jump right to the point, and kind of start peeling back some of the layers of Hebrews chapter 4, verses 14 through 16. I kind of want to reiterate a theme that I've hinted at already. Um, that within the context of Hebrews, Hebrews is not only looking forwards uh, for, the, for the believer, but maybe more importantly, it's also looking backwards. And so here's what I mean by this. That Hebrews assumes a certain amount of knowledge about the Old Testament. As the author is attempting to encourage and spur on the reader, the author references many figures themes, biblical theological context of the Old Testament throughout this previous context. And so what you've also probably noticed is that through Rodney's sermons over the past few weeks, he also references Old Testament texts. And that's on purpose. That's built in to the text this morning is Old Testament principles and scripture. And so getting to verse 14, it says, Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. Right from the beginning of our passage today, our main theme is announced in plain and simple terms. There's no flowery language or poetry to woo our hearts or our imaginations to what this verse is talking about. And that's what I kind of had this uh, light bulb moment for me in the midst of reading and studying this passage, that this passage is like headline after headline after headline. Like there's no tagline, there's no extra details, it gets right to the point. And verse 14 tells us some crucial things, that Jesus is our great high priest, that he is God, he is with God, and he is above the heavens, and that he is the Son of God. And so I want us to take a moment to think about the construction of the verse, that the specific phrases that are written together, the author calls for Christians to be, have faithfulness based on Jesus' role as the holy and sympathetic high priest, that he is appointed by his Father, and that he's also called to suffer so that others would receive the great gift of salvation. And so this is the same theme that was also announced, if you remember, from Hebrews chapter 2. The author now begins, though, in chapter 4 to develop the priestly ministry of Jesus in more detail. So recall back in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 17, where Jesus' role is connected to being a priest. And not only did this passage refer to Jesus as a priest, but it refers to Jesus as a great high priest. So then what is a high priest? Let's get some background knowledge really quick. In the Old Testament and the Old Covenant, the high priest was the supreme religious figure in Israel. He oversaw all the functions of all the priests in all the land who were chosen by God. And the first high priest was Aaron, and that role passed throughout his entire lineage. And of all the responsibilities of the high priest, the greatest was to offer a sacrifice in the Holy of Holies on the Day of Atonement. And the high priest was the only person who could enter the Holy of Holies and could only do, in, do that in a specific day, in a very specific way, with very specific sacrifices. If you want context or more details, I would encourage you to look at Leviticus chapter 16, 1 through 34. Now, not during my sermon, maybe later this week, uh, but uh, the role of high priest was incredibly significant because the role of the high priest was the mediator for the Jews before God so that God would accept their offerings and sacrifices. Now, 
What's interesting about the passage we have before us today is that Jesus redefined the office of priest because even though he was tempted in every way as we are, he never sinned, he never faltered, and he's able to forever and always intercede and remain in the presence of God, bringing us near to God. Old Testament priests came and went. And if you think, and as I was thinking about this week, if you go back to Leviticus chapter 21 and read that entire chapter, again, not right now, but it describes the expectations of holiness and behavior and conduct for Old Testament priests. And in reading through that chapter, I was reminded that while priests were ordained in the Old Testament and were holy in terms of their office and their appointment, that holiness was only an outward one. It does not necessarily mean that their holiness was inside of them, that they weren't perfect. And for everyone this morning... Jesus was holy in all the ways he needed to be holy. That in all things and in all ways, he was holy. His motives, his practices, his attitudes, his actions, his behaviors. He met all of the laws. He met all of the rituals. He met God's expectations for us. And something that I've tried not to do this week, also throughout the course of my study, and I would, I would challenge you not to do the same thing, is to contextualize this passage in today's terms. I feel like if we were to try and contextualize Jesus, if we were to call him something else than a priest, we'd be shortchanging Jesus, that we'd be shortchanging Scripture, we'd be shortchanging God's design of his church. We wouldn't be grasping the depth and breadth of the role of priest if we didn't call him by his God-given title. And so, if like, for example, we wouldn't we want to say something like, well, since the word priest is maybe too old-fashioned, maybe we'll call Jesus as our defense attorney, all right? Now, pardon the, you know, the metaphor. I've been reading a lot of John Grisham books, okay? Attorneys are on the top of my mind. Um, but that would be short-changing who Jesus is. And in Hebrews, even though throughout reading Hebrews it can be tough sledding at times, we get to see the riches of Jesus and the way that God planned to show him as God designed through the history and the religion of the Old Testament. All of this was for Jesus. If you recall in, in John chapter 5, verse 39, Jesus says this. He says, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is these that bear witness of me. That as we read Hebrews, as we are connected back to the Old Testament, we need to be reminded that Jesus is pointing us to himself and to Jesus and his plan of salvation. Well, another way to think about all this is that God was guiding the history of Israel as a backdrop to help make sense of the coming of Christ. Now, in verse 14, if you look at how it concludes, it concludes with a phrase that says, hold fast. Biblically speaking, that phrase comes from a Greek term, krateo, which means to use strength by seizing or laying your hands upon it. Now, the phrase hold fast, now I'm not talking about like Vin Diesel going about his life one quarter mile at a time or like having quick hands in a game of nerds, rooted ladies, okay? There's a lot more weight to this phrase. And in doing some reading about the phrase and kind of the context of that phrase throughout history, one context that intrigued me most was the historical context of Norwegian and Dutch sailors, all right? Now, I know this is way off the beaten path, but hang with me here, okay? To an 18th, uh, to an 18th century sailor, Fast is the term meaning to make tight. So if a sailor was to make fast the line, it would mean to hold the rope tightly. And sailors, back then being superstitious, began to tattoo the phrase, hold tight, onto the front-facing knuckles of their fists. 
and that was do, done to do in good luck so that while holding the lines to make fast the line, they'd be reminded that no matter what, a sailor would never let go. And so practice that for a second in your seat. You can if you want to. But when you think about holding a rope, how do you hold the rope? Do you hold the rope with your uh, palms facing outward or your palms facing inward? And think about that phrase, hold fast, being tattooed to those front-facing knuckles. That's what a sailor was doing every time he sailed because his life depended upon those ropes being tight. And so as we think about this scripture, sailing reference aside, do we hold fast to our confession? That as 14, I'll say it again, says, Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast to our confession. And when I say and we think about that word confession, I mean the knowledge and the understanding of Christ's cross and the implications of his death and resurrection on your life. And continue to think through that verse and thinking through the phrase of holding, ta- uh, holding fast, as I mentioned before, what are we holding fast to? Let's break that down a little bit. We're holding fast to our confession. Now, in thinking through that word confession, I think too often we maybe assume what this means or we inaccurately connect that word confession only to ourselves or our own story, and I think it has a much more thorough meaning. The scripture is pointing to us that our confession of the historical Jesus Christ and the confession of our Christian faith. So what is confession? Let's think through this scripturally. 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 13 reminds us of our confession of the gospel. Romans chapter 10, verse 9 says, If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16 speaks more of our confession. It says, Great indeed we confess is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, and taken up in glory. And also in 1 John chapter 4, verse 15, we read that whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. This is what Christians throughout centuries have claimed as their confession. And Hebrews 4.14 urges Christians not to abandon this confession particularly, especially in the face of trial. As we already have seen, again, thinking through the context of this writer and reflection of the background and history that this person had, we need to think through the Old Testament. And we have seen how Israel's way of responding to temptation is not how the author would encourage us to emulate. Israel let temptation and trial erode their confession in God. They heard God speak words from fire. They witnessed the plagues and the parting of the Red Sea. They received the covenant passed on by their forefathers and heard the messages of the prophets, and yet they failed. They did not hold fast. And here are we. All we have is Scripture. We don't have the background or the, the, the specific direct context that they may have. And so God knew where we would be prone to wander. He, would be, he knew where we'd be prone to lack belief. And so in contrast, this scripture this morning is challenging us to keep clinging to our own confession of faith, but not by our own strength. That's not what I'm trying to communicate. Or we're not trying to hold on to our confession through the mediation of a prophet or even another priest. But we are holding on to our faith in our great high priest in Jesus, the Son of God. So verse 15 then demonstrates the sinless nature of Christ as our high priesthood and continues kind of the description also of Christ's humanity. So why is this important? Let's, let's think about verse 15. Let's read that together. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15 says, For we do not have a high priest 
who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. This verse does not get wrapped up in complicated theology, one that I really appreciate. Um, or as my father-in-law would say, who, uh, he's got quite a few phrases that are pretty unique to Missouri, uh, but he, uh, he would say that this verse does not get wrapped around the axle. So here's what, if I were to translate that Keith Davis speak for you, it would mean that this verse does not get confused. It doesn't upset. Um, it doesn't get sidetracked. This verse doesn't get tangled in bureaucracy or opinion or context. Instead, this verse formulates a real and tangible theology that we can anchor our lives to every single day. And so why do we need a high priest who is able to sympathize with our weaknesses? Hebrews 4.15 answers that question by explaining that Jesus could not have fully identified with us and fulfilled his ministry of propitiation if he had not also identified with us in our temptations, and yet he remained without sin. The verse is trying to help remind us that he can connect with us throughout all of our temptations and throughout all of our struggle with sin. Now let's talk about temptation really quick. I think the, qu the typical understanding of temptation is that uh, you could define it as maybe the enticement to do wrongdoing and that confronts us every day. Maybe that is in its simplest terms. And we typically think about it in our most graphic forms. Things like greed or pride, lust or anger or jealousy, idolatry. And yet when we examine Jesus' temptations in Matthew chapter 4, we see how basic temptation can be. The narrative in, in Matthew chapter 4 demonstrates that even eating can be a, a temptation and even a satisfying a physical hunger can result in the disobedience to God's will. In that passage of Matthew chapter 4, Jesus was fasting in the desert and Satan tempted him to turn rocks into loaves of bread. And so scripture shows us that temptation comes in many ways and forms. And this scripture in Hebrews is emphasizing to us that we are to go to Christ when we are tempted because he is the only one who was tempted in every way common to man, and yet he did not sin. So again, let's think about maybe not right now, but maybe 70 years ago, how would this apply? C.S. Lewis kind of imagined what a rebuttal of objecting to this would look like. He imagined this. He says, if Jesus never sinned, then he doesn't know what temptation is like. He lived a sheltered life and is out of touch with how strong temptation can be. And here's how Lewis responded to even his own rebuttal. He says this, a silly idea is current that good people do not know what temptation means. This is an obvious lie. Only those who try to resist temptation know how strong it is. A man who gives into temptation after five minutes simply does not know what it would have been like an hour later. That is why bad people, in one sense, know very little about temptation. They have lived a sheltered life by always giving in. Christ, because he was the only man who never yielded to temptation, is also the only man who knows to the full what temptation means. The only complete realist. Jesus can sympathize with us in our pain and our dying because he experienced excruciating pain and entered it all the way into death without sin. And he can sympathize with us in our allurements to sin because he was tempted in every way as we are. I think if I were to be transparent um, this morning, as a Christian, I have to ask God for forgiveness in believing the scripture. Do I genuinely believe that Jesus was tempted in the same ways that I am? Do I really believe that Jesus struggled with the same insecurities or irrational thoughts or emotions 
that I have towards God. And the scripture kindly, graciously, and succinctly rebukes my lack of belief in plain language and reminds me of who my Savior is. He reminds you, Christian, who your Savior is. Jesus knows the battle. He fought it all the way to the end. And he defeated that temptation monster every single time. And he was tested like we are. And the Bible says that he is also a sympathetic high priest. Again, let's break down what the passage says. Jesus does not roll his eyes at your pain or slouch his shoulders at your struggle. He sees you and he embraces you as a cherished child of God who knows that you are weak and prone to wander. And remember, in reading Hebrews, we want to think about the contextualization of the Old Testament. How did God design this? How did God design a priest? How did God design his son Jesus? In the Old Testament, God designed a priestly model of intercession, a model of diligent adherence to the law of ritual and timing. And I'm here to remind you, and Hebrews is here to remind you that God wrapped all of that design into Jesus for you because he loved you to die a perfect death for you exactly when you needed it, to provide you the grace and the mercy and the truth of who you are in God as a cherished child of God. That's what Hebrews is trying to remind us of, all in sympathy. And also Christ's perfect sinlessness is indispensable to Christ's ministry as our high priest. Now think about how Israel lived under the threat of the wrath of God every single day. Old Testament priests could only offer sacrifices that would delay God's judgment against their sin. Their sacrifices could only buy more time, another week, another month, or another year. The understanding of Old Testament sacrifices, alongside the knowledge of our scripture this morning and the power of Christ's cross and his resurrection from the dead, provides us a knowledge of God's sacrifices of infinite worth of sending his son for us to die. And reminded that Jesus does not take the blood of bulls and goats into the heavenly temple, just like an Old Testament priest would. Nor does he even take the blood of a mere human. He takes his own precious blood. He takes the blood of the Son of God. And so when God the Father sees his sacrifice on the cross for my sin and for your sin, he says that is enough. That the debt has been paid. That God's righteousness has been vindicated. That his glory is exalted. And then he overlooks the punishment for my sin and transgression and counts me and you as cherished children of God. That's what Hebrews 14 through 16 is stressing to us, that Jesus was the perfect sacrifice, that he's enabling you, he's enabling me to be accepted by God, to be glorifying to God because we are all sinners in need of saving. And we can brag about that to our friends. We can admit that we don't have it all together. We can confess that we need a saving grace because of Christ and because of Christ's sinlessness. We can embrace our sin nature and be reminded of forgiveness. So let's look at the last, um, let's look at the last passage of Scripture this morning. The last verse is verse 16. It says this, Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. The writer of Hebrews right now is kind of spreading out a web of powerful reasons, not only why we should hold fast to our confession, but why we can hold fast to our confession. Throughout the first four chapters of Hebrews, the author is trying to emphasize to our head and to our hearts that God is for you. Culminating in these three verses in chapter four, 
He's reminded us that we have a great high priest. He's reminded us that Jesus is alive, that he's not dead. He's reminded us that Jesus is in the presence of God, that he is the son of God, and that our Savior is sympathetic. So hold fast to your confession in Christ. But what, like, for me, I wrestle with practicality of our verses this morning. What practically do we do with this hope and with this faith? That's the last point in verse 16. Read it again. It says, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. So I want you to listen closely here because I feel like this is incredibly important. Every single one of us needs help. We are not God. We have needs. We have weaknesses. We have confusions. We have insecurities. We have unbelief. We all have limitations. There's nobody in this room or in the kingdom of this planet that is perfect. And so I don't want you to also walk out of this room or walk out into your your family and your friends this week playing the comparison game to think, who has it more together than me in this life of Christ? Because we all have limitations, except for we all have Christ at our side. But something that we also have, all of us in this room, is sin. And so because of that sin, I feel like, maybe, and I'm not trying to project, but I'm just going to be transparent with you right now. This is what I struggled with. Like in the pit of my stomach or in the back of my mind, I know that I'm not worthy of the help that I need. That you, I cannot make a withdrawal from a bank account that I have a negative balance. And so sometimes I feel trapped in being in a cycle of being aware of my sin, yet the guilt and the shame of approaching God and asking my Savior for help can feel like an obstacle. And so what can I do or what can you do? What is scripture saying and preaching to this lie and this trap that Satan would love to keep me or maybe you in at this time? Well, here's some circumstances. Some of you in this room, in being approached by your sin, may try to deny your sin nature. You may try to deny your desperate need for help, and you may attempt to be a superhero who claims that you don't need any assistance. Some of you in this room may try to drown out that call of the needing of being a savior and Christ's call of immersing your life. So you're going to immerse your life in your hobbies, your work, your family, or any type of distraction that you can quickly engage your heart and your mind with because you just don't want to wrestle with the depravity of your sin, but also the need of help. And some of you in this room may simply give way to the paralysis of despair, perceiving your sin to be too large an obstacle for God or too deeply rooted in your own life that asking for help is hopeless. But I want to remind you, Christian, or if you're not a Christian this morning, I want to remind you that God declares over each of these circumstances, over each of these scenarios, that Jesus Christ came to be your high priest. And so to every one of you in this room who maybe think you're a superhero, I want you to take an opportunity to remind yourself that your great high priest is allowing you an opportunity to take a deep breath and find rest in the Father rather than rest in your own efforts. And Jesus Christ became a high priest, for those of you who are maybe distracted, to capture your attention. That when your distractions come into your life, we can quickly put them into perspective and priority because of his love and affection for you. That Jesus came to be a high priest to shine a beacon or a beam of hope to truth that your sin, whatever it may be, is not stronger or larger or more powerful than his death and his resurrection. That's why he came to be a high priest. Yes, we all need help. Yes, none of us deserves the help that we need. 
But we are also here to say no to those lies that attempt to prevent us from approaching the Father in need of help. Look at what God says in verse 16. He says, Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace in time of need. Grace to help. Gracious help. This is the whole point of the New and Old Testament. That God planned for a high priest, a savior, a redeemer, a gracious helper. That righteous judgment has been replaced by radical mercy. It is a throne of grace. And the help that we get at that throne is mercy and grace to help us in in our time of need. And so for those of you in this room, and I pray this for our entire church, for those who may not be here, that I pray that we would not sink in the presence of God and that instead we would draw near to him with the boldness and confidence knowing that he is willing to equip us with the mercy and grace in our time of need. So as, as we close today, I want to leave you with a quote because I think it kind of connects to this passage. Um, and as, as we think about Jesus being a high priest, I think it's important that we, that we think about what we believe in him. I.e., if I were to connect that to the passage, how are you holding fast to your confession? And also, I think it's important for us to think through and wrestle with how we act towards our Savior. In other words, how do we come to him in our time of need? Because I think this, this two-pronged aspect of walking with Christ I think is incredibly important for us to wrestle with. So I came acro- across a quote uh, from Herman Ritterboss, who's a Dutch theologian, who once said this, every imperative of Scripture, meaning what we are to do for God, rests on the indicative, which is who we are in our relationship with God. And the order of those things is not reversible. And so I hope and pray for myself as well as for everybody in this room that when we hear these verses as we engage and interact with our Savior that we would be reminded and embrace the Scripture passage and who God is and who we are. That when we are holding fast to our confession of Christ as our Savior or when we are struggling to do so, I hope and pray that the Holy Spirit reminds us of this verse. And so when we put forth the effort to hold fast to our confession, when we read our Bibles, when we pray, when we embrace community, but maybe when we struggle to do that, I hope we are doing that because we know and we understand that we are sons and daughters in whom God deeply loves first, that there is no status being gained by trying to hold fast to our confession. Or when we are fighting against temptation, I pray that we remember these verses. I pray that we would remember that Christ came to this earth and lived a perfect life because he deeply loved us. He willingly separated himself from the Father to be here with us. And when we think that our temptation is too great or our sin is too strong, we place our faith in Christ who is stronger and more powerful than any of our sin or shame that can ever come upon you. So that, yeah, when we get up the next day and we try and do it again, when we try and walk a holy life, we can be assured that Christ's life and death is substitutional for us. So when God looks at you, he sees Jesus. So again, we're not trying to earn God's favor, but we're trying to rest in God's provision of Christ because of the pressure of performance is not on you, Christian. The pressure or purpose of your life is to believe and to hold fast in who Jesus is. And when we are in, and lastly, when we are in need of help at any point of this week or this month or this year, because it's going to happen, I pray that we would remember these three verses. I pray that we would wrestle with what it looks like to draw near the throne of grace with confidence. 
And you need to know that and you need to understand that the word confidence in this scripture passage means without fear or free access or speaking everything. If we go to literally the etymology of it, literally the scripture is calling us to pour out our souls to God. This is not scripture telling you to put on a bold face and pretend that everything is okay or that you think you can handle everything or that you know everything. This is not a fake it till you make it type situation. That's a false confidence that the earth projects upon us. This scripture is challenging us not to be embarrassed of our sin, but to understand that we need a great high priest who was sinless for us, to not be ashamed of our sin, but to embrace our identity as being saved by Christ and to not hold anything back. That's why this word confidence is inserted into the scripture. We're not confident in ourselves. We're confident in the standing before God. I want you to like, think about this in a relational context. You cannot pour out your heart to the fullest confidence to a person you do not love, respect, or admire, or even understand. But if you connect with someone you entirely trust, how swiftly do the words just kind of flow out? When you have that emotional vomit, when you just, you're, a, you're able to express your insecurities, your fears about life, because you know and love that person. And so it is with our, our verse in Hebrews that we are being described the temper and disposition of our Savior and our God in which we are, to, we are able to approach him with confidence, not because of ourselves, but because of his divine plan of giving us a great high priest who died for us, who died a, uh, lived a sinless life and died a brutal death for us, but also rose again and defeated that sin, that shame, and that death. And so lastly... I look forward to the days and the weeks and the months and years to come for us at Rooted. And this is what really excites me, to look at this verse together in transparency and honesty while we can share our struggles and successes as a family and we can find fruit from this specific passage. The stories that we will be told when we, represent our, when we present our needs to God, when we present our circumstances and situations in which really the only thing that we really have is the faith and our, and our holding fast to the confession of Christ, and we receive God's mercy, we receive that peace that transcends understanding, and when God's character is proved over and over again to be patient, to be abounding in steadfast love, to be gracious to us, and when God the Father proved himself worthy by providing the exact help that you need as these verses promise, I'm incredibly excited to share those with you through family group, whether that's through a Sunday gathering or that's during communion today. And that day when we get to share together God's grace with one another because he fulfills his promises, that's going to be a day for this, this church, this community, and this kingdom where we get to really see God exalted as he has already is. Let's pray. <clears throat> Heavenly Father, we come before you and I thank you for sending your son Jesus, to be our great high priest. Um, I thank you, Jesus, that you lived a sinless life. I thank you that you can sympathize with us through temptation. And I pray that we would wrestle with the thoughts of, do we really believe that this week? That when we do need help, that we would approach you first. Rather than maybe uh, approaching social media, rather than approaching friends or family, that we would approach you, Jesus, as our Savior, because you are excited and enthused to hear from us, that you desire a relationship with us and that you are a great high priest, that you intercede for us forever and always. I pray for those in this room who may not be Christians, that they would understand, that you would enlighten them, Holy Spirit, that you deeply love them, that you intercede for them, and that you sent your son Jesus for them. 
Thank you for scripture. Thank you for the people in this place. Thank you for our church. Um, thank you that Rodney gets to go in um, and talk about the fruit uh, that you have already started here rooted to another body in this community. In Jesus' name, amen.